Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You've tuned in to the coolest culinary conversation over the airwaves. And the delicious conversation starts right here and right now. Whether you love to cook or love to eat, I like to say we can definitely be friends. If you're an aspiring culinary student or a Food Network junkie who makes great reservations, well, you're bound to find something you'll love on this show. Every week, I talk food and health, wellness and wine, cocktails, trends, tech, fitness, and more to fuel your hunger and satiate your soul. And you can always take your cooking skills to the next level just by staying tuned. And be sure to visit chefjamie.com for my features, forums, recipes, cooking videos, and more. You can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And with that said, we have a full plate this hour, so let's dig in, shall we? You want to make a better pork chop, right? I mean, who doesn't? Well, the trend to butter-based applies to lobster and steak and to pork chops too. And to master perfectly juicy pork chops, have you tried butter-basting them in the pan? This is a tutorial on how to butter-baste. And yes, it will make you a culinary hero. I am a professional chef by trade from the Culinary Institute of America a lot, a lot of years ago. Having spent time in professional kitchens and the last 20 plus very blessed, privileged years on television, 16 on national radio, I make it my goal and I take great pride in making you the best cook you know. So if you want to master the pork chop, listen here. Even though pork chops are a weeknight staple, especially during this winter season where it does seem to cool down at night, and for those of you in the really cold parts, well, then this is a rustic hearty meal, pork chops can be intimidating even as a weeknight staple. If yours end up dry and or gray, we know color is flavor and butter is flavor, and I think everything is better with the three B's. It's my mantra, butter, bacon, and beer. And yes, the rule applies here, by the way. There's really no need to fear the pork chop. If you treat it like a T-bone steak with care and attention and butter basting, you will master the pork chop like a master chef. Now, pan roasting is hands down the most effective, mouth-watering, luscious way to cook a piece of protein. If you want boneless, skinless chicken breasts, let's say, that are bursting with juice and topped with that golden, crunchy skin, or maybe a thick salmon filet that's tender, medium, rare at its center, well, the art of the pan roast is what coaxes maximum flavor and texture from whatever you're cooking. Browning on top of the stove creates that flavorful, crusty outside layer, and it sears in the juices. And then frequently turning 
protein allows it to brown all over. That's another chef's trick. Now, another layer of flavor that we keep up our sleeve comes from butter basting. It's one of those chef's moves that will forever change the way you cook. Now, I talk about brown butter a lot on this show. I call it my one ingredient wonder because you can put a stick of butter in a sauce pot and over medium low heat, bring it to a simmer, watch the water evaporate and the butter solids get brown and golden. And in French, we call that noisette. And you have the most beautiful seasoned with salt and pepper, one ingredient sauce. Uh, You could fry sage leaves in it and pour it over ravioli. Uh, You could drizzle it over roasted grilled or even steamed vegetables. It makes trout amandine and Dover sole and all of those wonderful things fabulous. It happens to make brownies and blondies and pie dough delicious too. But butter basting is that concept essentially of brown butter in constant layering. Now, brown butter bathes the meat with flavor when you do it in the pan, and it carries heat into every nook and crevice of specifically the pork chop in this instance. So how does one butter baste, you ask? Well, once the meat has been seared, and in this case, the pork chop cooked almost all the way through, like uh, two-thirds, add Good quality unsalted butter, in my opinion. I use unsalted butter because I like to regulate the amount of salt in my dish. And I've already liberally seasoned that pork chop with salt and pepper on both sides before it went into a pan of butter and olive oil. Butter for flavor, olive oil for smoking point so that you can bring that pan up nice and hot before you sear that pork chop. But you add additional butter once the pork chop has been seared on both sides and maybe some aromatics like unpeeled cloves of garlic. They could be peeled too or some fresh sturdy herbs like thyme or rosemary. And when the butter has melted, and when I say butter, I mean a a good amount, like at least half a stick. It starts to foam You tilt the pan towards you so that the butter pools at one end of the pan, and that will help you spoon up the butter. And you use a long-handled spoon to quickly, repeatedly spoon up that foamy butter and pour it back over the meat. And the butter eventually finishes foaming and it gradually begins to brown. Now you stop basting before the butter starts to smoke or go black because that means you've gone too far. But this is the process of butter basting. And it's beautiful, by the way, for a lobster tail. And it's gorgeous for a filet mignon. And it happens to work succulently for pork chops. Now you're going to want a reasonably thick bone-in say one thick, one inch thick rather, uh, pork chop. Those are perfect because you can still completely cook them on top of the stove without having to finish them in the oven. So at least around an inch thick. And as for which type of pan, most chefs will tell you that cast iron is the way to go. You get a great sear, great heat conduction as well. But if you don't have a cast iron pan, use the heaviest saute pan that you have. Now with butter basting, The protein, or this beautiful pork chop, takes on the fragrance of the herbs, but it also gets that nutty, 
wonderful flavor of the browning butter. And don't forget, when you're cooking pork chops this season, please think pink. Don't be afraid if the center of your pork chop is still slightly pink. It should be. You want to cook the chops to 140 degrees and then let them rest to carry over. We call that carryover cooking to about 145. You get that perfect rosy medium doneness. And with butter basting, you will get the most luscious, tender, beautiful pork chop that you have ever made. And I'd love to know how your butter basted pork chops turn out. So please do email me, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. We'll get you to me directly. By the way, there are a bevy of butter basted recipes posted at chefjamie.com as well. So be sure to check it out. Okay. It's time for food news this week. Valentine's day is almost here. Maybe you're looking to celebrate. Well, here's some really good news that you can use to brighten up your day. Cadbury has announced that it is expanding its hugely popular Oreo line. Those are two of my favorite things, Cadbury and Oreo in the same sentence, by launching two new products next month. Well, actually, this month. Is it February already? This means for the first time, by the way, that whole Oreo cookies can be enjoyed between Cadbury Dairy Milk Chocolate. Maybe you died and went to heaven. It is the brand new Cadbury Dairy Milk Oreo Sandwich. And then, of course, if you're dieting, well, they made them in bites. Thank you, Cadbury. You'll be able to pick them up from all major retailers nationwide this month, February. And, uh, of course, you do know that chocolate boosts brain power, and so that's my excuse. And please don't touch your dial, because there is lots more stimulating and delicious conversation coming up in your radio. We do have a full plate this hour. We're going to dish with Marcy Smothers next. Disney fans, rejoice. We're going to eat like Walt. Oh, yes. The culinary history and a fascinating one of Disneyland right after the break. Also, we're sharing the inspiring success story. And wait till you hear it. Talk about goosebumps. Malachi Jenkins went from Compton to restaurateur and I cannot wait to share his story with you and he is a published author his new cookbook release called Trap Kitchen available now I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and there is more fabulous food right after this next best thing to eating food is talking about it, of course. And so we dish on delicious conversation every Sunday in your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. If you are a Disney enthusiast, well, then this conversation is for you. A new book has just released to the delight of Disney lovers and history buffs and food lovers alike. 
Eat Like Walt is a culinary tour of the park, every attraction having a story, as do so many of the menu items. And Marcy Smothers takes you on a journey in this beautiful coffee table book that not only demonstrates how integral food was to the idea of Disneyland, but showcases the insight Walt had about people and what they ate and how it really determined our eating habits. Marcy Carricker Smothers is a radio veteran herself, a noted author and a food authority in Northern California, and she too has a love for all things Disney, Uh, and I'm proud to call her a friend, uh, an old friend in fact. Not that you're old, Marcy, nor me. It's just been a long time. (laughs) Great to be back with you, Jane. I'm very glad to have you here. Congratulations on the book. What a beautiful storytelling of something so near and dear to so many of our hearts. Thank you. I mean, I... I, I always go back to Herb Ryman, who is famously the one of Walt's artists that drew the concept map for Disneyland in 48 Hours with Walt by his side in 1954. But I read an interview with Herb where he said, it's for people like yourself to have the privilege and the honor to present Walt as a human being, mm. a person that can be known, a person you can be close to. And those are the words that guided me because food is intimate. It's every day, you know. And Walt was a, had a very simple palate, but yet he had huge dreams. And when he was planning Disneyland, Jamie, I mean, that was my proof of concept. He, he called it initially the kingdom of good eating. That was actually the first title because he intended the food to be an attraction unto itself. And so that's what the book is about, the planning of Disneyland and the food being immersive and entertaining, just like the ride. Yes, and that legacy of Walt's really lives on in the culinary mecca that is all of the lands and Main Street USA, and we'll get to that. But I'd like to start at the beginning, please, because you say, and from reading through the book, and I couldn't put it down, Disneyland opened in 1955, but the culinary history dates back prior to that. Well, yeah, because, you know, I mean, Walt's... What I found when I sold the book to Disney was it was just the culinary history of Disneyland. But once I started researching in the archives and speaking with Walt's family and talking with the people that worked with Walt, 100% of the people in this book knew Walt, first person, no exception. You know, So I think that's part of what makes this book so unique because you really feel like you're learning about Walt from people that were with him because mm-hmm. they were. But during the research, I realized I had more to the book than just Disneyland. I had a whole chapter about Walt at home, what he ate, how he ate, what his family life was like. And to me, that's one of the most precious chapters. And then I also added the studio, because Walt did not set out to be a restaurateur, but he became one. So by the time his fourth studio opened in 1940, the Walt Disney Studios that are in Burbank, he had four state-of-the-art restaurants. Hmm. And so, you know, that. So that predated all the stuff that then became Disneyland, of course, that opened in 1955. And those restaurants today, some of them still exist um, with some of the original uh, measures that made them so very Walt-centric. Yes, I mean, Carnation Cafe on Main Street USA, the Plaza Inn, which was then the Red Wagon Inn in Walt's day when he had lessees because he didn't have any money to open the restaurants and run the restaurants himself, so he leased them all out. And then on the other side, Jolly Holiday, that was before the Pavilion, mostly a seasonal restaurant, but interestingly, you could enter from both sides, the Adventureland side and from the Main Street U.S. side. So those stars still exist. And, of course, River Bell Terrace that used to be Aunt Jemima Pancake House was mm-hmm. there. Yes. When Walt was there and uh, when Walt was alive. The Blue Bayou and Club 33 and Cafe Orleans are all restaurants that Walt championed, but he passed away before they opened. He passed away in December 66, and those three restaurants opened in 67. 
And there's and then the Rancho Zocalo used to be the Casa de Fritos, mm-hmm. and Casa de Fritos was an opening day restaurant, and you can actually find the flag that flew at the original Casa de Fritos in Rancho del Zocalo behind the salad station. Yes, and I love that they did that as well. How many uh, hundreds or thousands of trips to the park have you made (laughs) in your grown-up years in researching this incredible, wonderful world of Disney food? Well, you know, I wrote, I like to write for my audience, with my audience, so I spent a lot of time at Disneyland. A lot. All over, in fact, in the back and acknowledges, I called them my offices, whether it be on Walt's train or sitting on Main Street USA or in Mm. front of the Riverbell Terrace. I would say probably over 80 days of writing at Disneyland. I also wrote a lot at the Walt Disney Family Museum here in San Francisco, where I live. Uh, And then, you know, I listened to exclusively Disney music when I wrote. Always I start the day with the Mary Poppins soundtrack, because that is my favorite live-action Walt Disney movie. It's one of Walt's favorites. And then either, you know, I made a playlist of Disneyland music, but I made the playlist only of the attractions that were there in Walt's time, because this book is a time capsule of Walt. Yes. So I only listened to music that he would have listened to. That's amazing. And it all set me into the mood. But being at Disneyland, of course, I was imbued with exactly what Walt intended for families and friends to have a fun, safe time together. And you hear that that din and that chatter, and I would look up, and I would know that I was just doing, you know, what I think Walt wanted me to do, which was keep the legacy of Disneyland alive. Yes, and, and maintain that wonderful, uh, beautiful, innocence of, of happiness, right? I mean, everything you mention in the music and the experiences and the train, and th- those are all such happy memories for so many of, for all of us, I should say, dating so far back. What's kind of fun is that you're, you're absolutely right, and including how food tastes to people, right? Mm. So you know, if you had something when you were a kid, someone told me recently, I love the Welch's grape juice, and they were describing it, that was in Fantasyland, like, they could still taste that Wilton's grape juice. That was what their special treat was when they went to Disneyland. And so, you know, that's the thing. Food tastes better at Disneyland. And it's also one of the first two questions people ask, I find, when you say, Jamie, you said to me, Marcy, I'm going to Disneyland. I'd say, Jamie, what's your favorite ride? What's your favorite food? It's true. And everyone that knows me knows, Marcy, that I would not dare leave a park, either, either of which, without a churro. And by the way, if I'm doing a two-day park hopper, that's two churros. And, I, and I'll tell you that without any shame. Well, you know, the number, here's a fun fact not related to my book, but the number one seller of churros at both parks is in Disney California Adventure under the four-leaf clover, the only four-leaf clover that's in the Bugs Life land. Which, so that's where they're selling the most churros, just so you know. Really? I'm going to the wrong cart, evidently. I go to well, the one... They all taste the same. Well, but, you know, but my favorite fun fact for modern-day Disneyland is this. The little red wagon that is on Main Street by the Plaza Inn, that got its name because the Plaza Inn was the red wagon inn before Walt bought it back in 1965, and the red wagon was the icon for Swift, who was the lessee for the red wagon inn. So that's why we have it there. But those lines are always so long. So I used to say to people, go over to the stage door in Frontierland. They also sell corn dogs. There's never a line. I thought I was giving the best tip ever. Wrong. I'll tell you why. At the Stage Door Cafe, they fry their corn dogs in the same oil as the french fries and the fish and the, the secret menu item of the mozzarella uh, sticks, which are available even though they're not on the board with marinara sauce. Secret the chicken nuggets, menu. Et cetera, et cetera. 
But at the Red Wagon, they only they have designated oil. They only cook the corn dogs in a designated oil. Therefore, the superior corn dog will be found at the Red Wagon. Okay, thanks for telling everyone, Marcy. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's fair, because you know what? If you're willing to wait in the line, you should know it, why you were waiting, because well, it was worth it. We will continue to eat like Walt Disney fans. Stay tuned. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. back and we're dishing chef jamie gwen in your radio marcy Carricker smothers the author of eat like walt yes the new and noteworthy new york times book review mention uh this extraordinary food history with food serving as the lens you can learn about walt disney's private and work life and explore all of the detail of the food that he loved and the recipes from his home and his studio and his magic kingdom. It really is an extraordinary exploration for Disney lovers and food lovers alike. And Marcy, where did we leave off? Oh, I wanted to know this before we touch on Main Street USA. Uh, You speak in the beginning of the book about how your parents allowed the kids, yourself included, one treat when you used to visit as a child. And I wonder if that chocolate fudge fixation still exists. (laughs) Well, you know what? It doesn't because now I'm running Spartan races and I've got different sort of level of (laughs) of fitness and what I eat has evolved as I've I've gotten older. I really actually don't care for sweets anymore. I don't think the last time I I met, I'm just not a dessert person. I would say now. Wait, Marcy, we used to be friends. Oh, I know. People don't understand that. I'm like, dessert first? Who needs dessert? Can I have Um, your fudge? Your your allotment. If I could have your Betsy kebab from the Bengal barbecue, we could make a trade. You got it. Done. Let's talk uh, on some of the, what you call today's Disneyland. If you would highlight a culinary attraction, and yes, you're going to have to choose one. It's like choosing your favorite child. I know. Um, Mm. Main Street USA. What is the the gastronomic highlight? Well, for me, it would definitely be the Plaza Inn, because I think that was Walt's favorite restaurant. He liked the Carnation Cafe, and he certainly liked all of them, but the Plaza Inn, I would go there. Their fried chicken is fantastic. Yes. Their green beans are quite good. Their mashed potatoes, it's the, it's the perfect plate as far as I'm concerned. And also, there's also an homage to Walt left at the Plaza Inn, and those are the hooks for the bird cages. Walt wanted to have five birds in the restaurant, and of course he found out after the fact that that would be illegal, at least as far as the health department, mm-hmm. but they kept an homage to Walt the hooks. And occasionally... It's seasonal. It rotates. They do hang cages with fake birds inside it. But no matter what, you'll always see those hooks. How interesting. And if I were to choose something on Main Street, I would go directly to the candy store. And (laughs) I would eat the um, almond-crusted chocolate-coated toffee. Uh, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, can't get enough of it. And you could give it to me in shards or small squares in a bag <laughs> or from the candy case in, you know, one big block. Uh, doesn't matter. All well, the about can- the chocolate Yeah, and I love toffee. that because the Candy Palace is a very important, you know, again, Main Street USA restaurant shop that was there in Walt's era. And, you know, they made a point of putting that, putting a window, you know, in the front of a candy shop. That was novel. That was novel, yeah, because yes. he wanted to make the, the candy making a show really a new thing in the 60s, right? That right. was not late, early 60s. So that of was course. another innovation of, of Walt. 
And um, if we went together to Adventureland? Well, I think the aforementioned Bengal barbecue. I love the chicken kebabs and the veggie kebabs. And t- tell us, history-wise, how long have those existed? You know, I'm not sure exactly how long that, that has been there because I'm not as, I'm not, I don't know that answer, but sure. I feel it's been a while. Since I was going to say. Yeah, since Indiana Jones and the Temple Doom attraction went in, huh. probably. But, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's consistently good and it's, it's pretty healthy. And I do try to eat healthy. If I'm going to have, you know, something that's really, what you know, like the big splurge at Disneyland, I would go to... Mm, Hungry Bear now because uh, the fact that I believe if Walt were alive, he would sit in the back patio like I do. Now he can see his train with the extended track, you know, snaking around the rivers of America. He could also see his beloved Mark Twain riverboat and the Mm. Columbia sailing by. And I have a cheeseburger with a lettuce wrap, but I do eat the French fries. Good. And I and I love Diet Coke. It's a big treat for me these days. And that would be like my, my that's my splurge. Okay, we're friends again. (laughs) <laughs> That's good. Um, I, I found it so fascinating, page by page. It's a page turner, reading through this immense, incredible research and history that you uh, poured over and document. Like going back to Carnation, isn't uh, that the original light bulb? Somewhere that you can look at still uh, the, exists. The light bulbs, uh, that's actually at Coca Cola Refreshment. Ah, Coca Cola. Yeah. Thank you. And that is that was one of Walt's. There's so many at yeah, Walt. So what happened there is if you go to Coca Cola Refreshment Center and you enter that main entrance, the one that's on the angle, uh, if you look up, you'll see there's all those red and white lights. You know that that, that go. But what happened was when the Imagineers back in the day in 1955 put in the light sockets, they put in one too little, so they couldn't do the red, white, red, white, red, white pattern. So the ingenuity was paint a light bulb half red and half white. What I love is that even though that restaurant has been remodeled, they left that light bulb in as an homage to something from Walt's day. I would be remiss, I should say, if we didn't mention Oscar and Indian. Oh, I know it. So Oscar, of course, the longest employee ever, still is. He just retired last year. Uh, He started in 1956. And then Indian... And I'm everyone, any, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, probably know Oscar because he was just the magnanimous host of Carnation Cafe, and he hugged everybody, and he waves with his big Mickey hand, and he was there the longest employee. His wife used to make Walt's milkshakes. Okay, wait, how many years of service as an employee then? Let me do the well, math. Well, he started in 56, and he just right. retired last year, so 59 years. Almost 60, 60 years. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so I'm having upcoming appearances at Disneyland in March, and I'm hoping that that's Oscar will be with me, but you could check out all the appearances on eatlikewalt.com. We will. But, Thank you. Yeah, but I would hope that Oscar would be with me. I've asked him to be, and uh, he said he will be if the weather is good. Oh, so how let's, wonderful. Let's hope for good weather. And Indian was also a chef of renown in Walt's day that I learned about, and it really was a pleasure to bring him to the public because he was lesser known. You know, he's been gone for quite a long time, but he was large and in charge, and famously, that was what they said about him, was the only, if one of the only people that Walt ever allowed a nickname to be on their official name tag. His real name is Hideo, but Walt keep hearing, kept hearing cast members say, Indian, Indian. So he walked up to Indian and goes, why do they call you Indian? And he explained it was because he used to play AAA ball for the Cleveland Indians. And Walt says, well, if everyone calls you that, why don't you put it on your name tag? <laughs> and so he did. Talk about legacy. I, yeah, the- I mean, there's... There's so much legacy in our world of food, Jamie. That's what excited me. Like all these anecdotal stories, you know, the big stories. It's so much. It all came back down to food, including the way that Walt ate, you know, and the way he would wait in line at the 
studio for food and pay for it. And he always paid for food and waited in line at Disneyland as well. Amazing. I love the recipes in the back of the book because they too have uh, so much goodness steeped in them, like soft gingerbread from 1934. We know that Walt had a sweet tooth. Yeah, yeah he did have a select sweet tooth. A select a, a one. But this one, these, many of the, so every recipe in the book is authentic to Walt's era, either from the home, his home, the studio, or from Disneyland. That soft gingerbread recipe has never been published before. It came from Walt's private files in the archives. Hmm. And I had, I tested everything. My recipe tester, Maxine, so, uh, we made sure we tried every recipe. Now, that may not be to everyone's taste. You know, this is mid-century comfort food for, for the large part, but you can eat like Walt. And all I ask is, please play music like I did, either Disneyland music or, or whatever, whatever soundtrack from your favorite animated or live-action movie of Walt, Sarah. But I think it sets the tone when you cook and eat like Walt to listen to music that Walt would have listened to. Oh, for sure. And to toast with a mint julep. A mint julep or a scotch mist would be Walt's favorite cocktail. Or a Coca-Cola. He preferred Coke over Pepsi, even though both Coke and Pepsi were opening sponsors for Disneyland, and, he, and there was no, a non-compete clause there. Mm. So there was not a non-compete clause. Yeah, so there's a lot of ways you can eat. He liked V8 juice yes. and black coffee. So you've got a lot of ways, depending <laughs> on what your taste is, non-alcoholic and and if you like a little adult beverage, there's that scotch mist. Yes, and just for the record, he had really good taste. <laughs> yes, he, did. he, he really did. And close. Yes, and, he did. Yes, and you document in so many things. You documented it so beautifully. Um, the reviews of the book are outrageous and well-deserved. And again, congratulations on the new and noteworthy mention for New York Times book review. Um, it is being touted as one of the best books on Disney dining ever. More than just a food book, it is a look into Walt Disney himself. And so if you want to step into the world, look at the history and really feel the love, there is no doubt. This is a, a beautiful history of Walt's food courts and stands and restaurants and the people who serve up and still to this day uh, serve up the tasty delights at Disneyland. Uh, really an, an incredible history. Congratulations to you, Marcy. Thank you, Jamie. Yes. Thank you for having me on your show. Great oh. to hear your voice. I know. I'm glad to catch up with you as well. Thank you. The You're book. Welcome. Thank you. The book is called Eat Like Walt and the author, Marcy Carricker Smothers. You can follow Marcy's delicious adventures, uh, of course, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, and you'll find more about the book and the book available everywhere. EatLikeWalt.com. Yes, we do cover everything scrumptious here. Um, and there is more delicious conversation in your radio coming up right after this.
Informative, entertaining, and inspiring conversation abounds in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen here. From rival Compton gang members to professional chefs, Malachi Jenkins and Roberto Smith's story is one of those that gives you goosebumps and hope. They were members of the historically feuding gangs, the Bloods and the Crips, when they were introduced by a mutual friend, and their love of food became their passport into the culinary world and the beginning of a very long and prosperous relationship. They are now cookbook authors and media darlings, taking the world by storm with the release of Trap Kitchen, banging recipes from Compton. The recipes are from their sold-out series of social media-driven pop-up restaurants in L.A., and the book gives you a glimpse of how one can change their path for the good. It's a story of inspiration with cooking as the driving force, and I am delighted that Malachi Jenkins is here to tell you his story. Hi, Malachi. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Congratulations on the book. This is really something. I'd like to go back, though. Um, tell me how you and Roberto met and what it was like. I mean, how you became involved in a gang and then meeting someone from what, quote unquote, the other side. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, in my neighborhood, it's pretty, it's kind of normal to be, you know, a part of something, you know, right. whether it be a clique or a gang. And um, I just took a liking to the lifestyle, which is, um, you know, sort of like a fraternity or a brotherhood mm-hmm. and, um, but, you know, as the media always shows on TV and you hear on the news that, you know, gangs are shared negatively, but we want to put some positive light on where we come from, you know, so that's what we did. And was it a dangerous place to be as we see it portrayed? Yes. It was. It's still a dangerous place to be. Um, ever since we were kids, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's such a blessing to make it up out of that, you know, mm-hmm. um, just growing up in a single parent family home, you know, um, really looking out for yourself. Uh, it's kind of it was, it was kind of hard. I lost a lot of friends along the way, but uh, I'm just happy that I'm here now. No, I'm happy that you and Roberto are both here now. So you become friends, and yeah. is it the mutual goal to get out of the gangs and see a better life? I can only imagine what those conversations must have been like. Uh, well, we really just wanted to turn it around and uh, find something that would uh, sustain us and make a living for our families, both as children. So, you know, we wanted to do something positive. Um, And who doesn't love food? You know, that was my go-to. Fresh out of culinary school, I went to La Corte on Blue Las Vegas. Good uh, for you. I started touring and doing personal chef work and on on the road cooking, and it kind of slowed down. But I had always used um, social media as a platform to display my culinary skills, you know, and people will always um, solicit me and say, hmm. "Hey, man, when, uh, when 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 can we buy your food?" And right. you know, when, when when will we be able to try these dishes? So Roberto came to me and said, "Man, we need to start selling food," and I thought it was just a great idea because uh, social media offers free marketing. Yeah, so we <laughs> yes, we ran with it. Well, there you go. You are a testament to drive and to. Uh, brains and grit and gratitude. And I will tell you, I commend you on that. Uh, You have my respect and I wish you continued success. I know that Trap Kitchen is going even bigger, more brilliant places. 
the cookbook has released. It's called Trap Kitchen, Bangin' Recipes from Compton. And it is the inspiring and extraordinary story of Malachi Jenkins and Roberto Smith and how they rose above and used food as the catalyst. And I love your story, Malachi. Thank you for sharing it, for spending time here, for sharing your passion, and of course, continued and great success to you. You deserve it. Thank you, and I want to tell everybody that's listening that if you're ever in Portland, Oregon, we have a food court up there. That's our new food venture. (gasps) Awesome. food mecca of Portland. So if you're ever in Portland, Oregon, you want to taste our good food, we have a a wide menu up there. Um, It's on 8523 Southeast Star Street, Portland, Oregon. I love it. Congratulations. All right, we're going to find Trap Kitchen across the country. I just know it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration and satiating conversation. I do hope that you will tune in every weekend and allow me to feed your soul. I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of scrumptious information for the hour. This is the easiest butternut squash soup you will ever make. And it turns out this creamy, beautifully rich soup with the most pure squash flavor you'll ever eat has just two ingredients. Now, granted, some of you may want a little more flavor than just purely squash, maybe some garlic or curry, a pinch of nutmeg. No matter what you add, take it from me. Uh, This is a brilliant recipe. And if you don't know me or my culinary style, well, then I'm sure glad you tuned in because I love hack recipes. Super simple, go-to, two, three, four, or five-ingredient recipes for, you know, those times when you need a shortcut. Now, mind you, I I love a long, drawn-out recipe and... I happen to make gnocchi from scratch, and there's a place for uh, duck breast in everyone's life, but this soup is just too simply fabulous not to love. You need about four pounds of butternut squash. I happen to like to buy the bag, the convenience kind that's already peeled and cubed, and you need two cans, 28 ounces total, of full-fat coconut milk, and then salt and pepper to taste, but those don't count. You actually uh, roast the squash in the oven uh, if it's cubed on a cookie sheet, a baking sheet, until it's tender and golden. If you're using the whole squash, you'll cut it in half and then, uh, you know, take out the seeds, put it cut side down on a baking sheet and roast it at 350 degrees. It'll take about an hour. Then I simmer that roasted squash, caramelized and golden, in coconut milk for about 10 minutes. And then I use my blender to process the soup until it is elegantly smooth. Then I season well with salt and pepper. I bring it back up to temperature on the stove and I serve it for a meatless Monday meal or as a starter course any other night lunch, dinner, you name it. That two-ingredient butternut squash soup I just shared with you is fabulous. And by the way, you're welcome. I will post my two-ingredient coconut butternut squash soup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend for more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you once again for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well.